This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hypoactive sexual desire in females is one component of sexual dysfunction in women. It's a sensitive topic and one that doesn't often get discussed in the clinician's office. What's the best way to ask about this problem and how do we manage it once we know it exists in our patients? We'll discuss these issues with a women's health specialist, Dr. Jacqueline Thielen, a Mayo Clinic general internist in the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thanks for joining us today, Jackie. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. Well, this topic does not come up very often in the clinician's office, and is it because women are reluctant or embarrassed to raise concerns, or is it because, as clinicians, we're not asking about the problem, or maybe both? I would say definitely both. Uh, in fact, it's not just women, it's also men. And in about 85% of women and men actually want to talk to their physicians about it. But interestingly enough, up to 71% don't because they're either afraid you're going to dismiss their concerns or even embar- get embarrassed by why they ask. So that's sort of nice. Our patients are actually worried about our own feelings. That's nice. But at the same time, of course, it's an important topic because it has so much uh, replications on uh, well-being. Well, have you got any recommendations on how we as healthcare providers should approach our patients and address this issue? I do think over the years, and I had been a general internist, so my transition to a specialty clinic is a little different in terms of my approach. But I think for the generalists, it really is about normalizing the process and asking the question on a consistent basis, because your patient may not have a problem right then and there. But if you've asked it, then they know when a problem does come up, they are more readily able to uh, think, oh, he'll listen or he or she will listen and I'll ask at that point. So I think normalizing and asking on a routine basis, such as in the review of systems, as you go through, uh, do you have any urinary symptoms? Do you have any bowel or bladder concerns? Um, Do you have any sexual health concerns? Uh, Making it a routine is very helpful. When you have a patient who's coming in for a specific sexual health concern, well then of course that's helpful, right? Because then you can just get to work on the specific Um, problem, although what they ask may not necessarily be the only in the center of the problem. I suspect part of the problem is we've often had no training in this area and we're somewhat afraid to get the answer. And what do we do with this information once we have it? All right. So oftentimes I'll encourage, even when teaching my medical students, sort of set the stage, recognize and tell their patients that all these conversations are going to be confidential, right, because people are worried about people talking and and going outside uh, this information, going somewhere else. Second of all, um, I remember to teach them about a poker face, which essentially means uh, don't show any necessarily assumptions or bias in your body language, wrinkling your nose, rolling your eyes, no matter what the question is. And in fact, for the provider, the technique of repeating what they just said gives you an opportunity to sort of in your own mind say, okay, so they have an attraction to cars. And you can say to yourself, okay, 
So what you're telling me is that you're having an attraction to a car. Um, and so it gives you an opportunity to reflect back what you heard with, uh, again, that poker face kind of mentality so you're not showing judgment in what it is that they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. It seems that hypoactive sexual desire is so intimately related with other components of sexual dysfunction. Can you really talk about this as an, one entity without talking about impaired arousal or impaired orgasm or pain with intercourse? Um, you really shouldn't. I think the core piece is to recognize that majority of women often will have more than one domain involved, and those are the domains we talk about, uh, desire, arousal, your ability to be orgasmic, and then, of course, whether or not there's pain involved. So when asking the questions, all of those questions need to be asked. And if she does certainly have a uh, specific desire issue problem, then you can focus on that. But oftentimes there is more than one. Will you discuss some of the questions or parts of the history that are important in assessing this? What about the physical exam? Uh, what should we be performing as a minimum for the physical exam of a patient with this concern? I do want to mention one more thing before we go to the exam in that some people just don't have sex or are okay with a decrease in sexual desire. The first question really should be, does that sexual dysfunction or sexual problem cause you distress? And we always say if there's no distress, then there's no dysfunction. Mm -hmm. But if they do say it's causing them distress, uh, that's when I, I, it's important to do the next steps, and certainly the physical exam is part of that. Okay. Um, a general exam, of course, is number one, because we recognize that sexual function can be impacted by all things, from blood pressure medications to menopausal hormonal changes to multiple sclerosis to diabetes. So you really do have to look at their whole health picture. And so, of course, a general exam can be very helpful. If it's more focused in terms of the sexual um, genital exam, then that part becomes really important to sort of take your time and not rush, for example, to the pap test, but take an opportunity to look at the structures of the genitalia, the clitoris, the labia, the opening of the introitus to see how healthy they are, whether or not there's tenderness to touch. Um, and of course, the speculum exam can be helpful. But of course, we don't want to get, forget the pelvic floor mm -hmm. and assessing the muscles both on the um, external uh, anatomy as well as internal. Let's talk a little bit about the effects that hormones may play in this issue. Uh, let's start with estrogen. What's the role of estrogen in sexual desire? And uh, once one goes through menopause, either a natural menopause or a surgical oophorectomy, does one's sexual desire change dramatically as a result of that? That's a good question, and I have to say that that's almost on an individual basis because there's not a black and white situation. When it comes to the biochemistry of sexual functioning, we think about it as a balance between inhibition and excitation. And there's a lot of things, chemicals in our body, that help with excitation, like norepinephrine and do dopamine. But then, of course, there's things that uh, result in inhibition, like serotonin, which is sort of what I would call the sexual satiety uh, process. And so when looking at something like estrogen, generally speaking, it helps with blood flow, it helps with sensation um, peripherally, 
And centrally, it's of course probably helping the part of the brain that's got mood as well as the impact on libido. For, so, for some women, yes, hormonal changes can be disruptive, but it certainly is not the big picture. Mm-hmm. All right. What about the role of androgens in sexual desire? That's a little bit more controversial for women. We certainly recognize for men, um, men have you know, much uh, more testosterone in their bodies. So for women, we're not quite sure the absolute role in sexual function, but it likely does play some role. Um, I think for my patients, the oophorectomized patients, the patient who um, now has a significant decline in their testosterone after the ovaries were removed, are probably going to be more benefited by the potential use of testosterone. But of course, we don't have an FDA-approved testosterone therapy for women, so that becomes a little bit more controversial. Um, some women I have found do respond to testosterone therapy, but certainly not all women, because unfortunately, or fortunately for women, sex and our sexual response is different than it is for our male counterparts. Women, it's about not just spontaneous drive, but also what we call receptive desire. And oftentimes, uh, that hormonal loss can impede spontaneous drive, but what we have, if we're in a a close relationship that we feel connected to, given the right sexual response, we will become aroused and subsequently desire sort of jumps on board. So we really don't necessarily need that drive, although we're used to it, and it certainly feels good, and um, spontaneity is certainly fun, but yes, as we age and go through the menopausal changes or hormonal changes, that might decline with time. And especially in relationships that, well, perhaps don't have quite the novelty that they used to have in your 20s and 30s. You mentioned loss of androgens with oophorectomy. Do all of a woman's androgens come from the ovaries? Good question. Um, No. We get androgens not just from the ovaries, but from the adrenal glands, as well as in our fat cells. And the same can be said about estrogen as well. And the difference is in menopause, your estrogen levels decline, and in testosterone, do not necessarily with menopause. That's a gradual decline over the lifespan, just like men. Okay. What, what physical problems are associated with uh, decreased sexual desire? Well, certainly um, one of the things that I see often in patients who describe it is a change in their self-image. It really is impacting their sense of psychological health, um, can lead to anxiety, can lead to depression, and certainly has impact on the relationship. Um, The desire part in itself, uh, if a person is not sexually active, certainly can see changes in the vaginal health of a person over time, um, and that certainly can be problematic from a from a GU health standpoint. Okay. How about medications? That's a tough one because if you look at the list of medications available for men, there's actually 26. Mm-hmm. For women, there's one. Um, Flibanserine finally did get FDA approval, and um, it is approved for premenopausal women, uh, and it is approved solely in the context of hypoactive sexual desire is not to fix anything else really 
uh, and it's restricted in terms of its prescription. So a provider has to sort of go online and learn about it and be sort of uh, allowed to prescribe it because there is some concern of hypotension as it relates to the medication. And women are unable, women should not drink alcohol because that seemed to make the hypotension uh, problem worse. The challenge in the study, however, is that there was mostly men in that study, if that would surprise you. Um, but still, uh, that's the recommendations. Um, as far as outcome in the studies, it increased satisfying sexual events by one per month. And so that doesn't not necessarily sound like a lot, but it depends on the individual. Okay. And certainly what I have found is because... We are limited by the medications that are available. We probably spend more time in looking at other aspects that have influence. But stay tuned. There are medications coming down the pike. There is a um, uh, bremelanotide sub-Q injection that's uh, in the works and currently in a phase three trial. So we might have something to help for women. But again, that's injected right prior, 30 minutes or so, to an episode. So that's not necessarily going to help that spontaneous drive piece, right? That's really going to help more the spontaneous piece in that level of arousal. Let's look at the other side of medications. Are there medications that can contribute to a reduced sexual desire? Oh, definitely. And we sort of see, unfortunately, one of the drugs that we commonly use all the time are the antidepressant medications. And if physicians don't ask their patients, um, are you having any sexual health concerns, they might discontinue their antidepressant without any information to you uh, that they've done so solely because there's an erectile problem or a decrease in libido or ability to be orgasmic. So medications, definitely the um, antidepressants are notorious. But not all patients who are on antidepressants have uh, a decrease in sexual function. So I think it's definitely worth not to avoid those drugs, but it is helpful to inform patients beforehand that it may uh, play a role. But depression in itself is also going to decrease libido. And so uh, generally speaking, if patients are aware of it, uh, they do pretty well. And of course, we can also use bupropion, um, which actually helps increase norepinephrine and dopamine to sort of counterbalance that serotonin increase as it relates to antidepressants to try to sort of help, again, that balance between excitation and inhibition to uh, help with the uh, SSRI-induced change in libido. Do you use estrogen therapy in women who have been through menopause, and does that do anything for sexual desire? For sexual desire? Um, I certainly, along with all the other potential reasons for using it, I will certainly prescribe it and see how they do. Um, A three- to six-month trial, if that's solely the reason uh, that they want to try it, I'm not adverse to trying it as long as they don't have contraindications for that. And I would say the same thing about testosterone. Um, If we use it as an off-label option for women, Again, they have to be informed about the potential side effects, and we sort of outweigh those. And, of course, if it doesn't help, we discontinue. You mentioned side effects from testosterone. What are those in women that we have to watch for? 
The one, of course, that always bothers women is the idea of weight gain. We're already gaining weight in menopause anyway. So, uh, but I do tell women if we're the goal of using testosterone therapy is to increase the testosterone level from the low end of the normal to the high end of the normal. We're avoiding super physiologic doses, so we should really have minimal symptoms. So weight gain, yes, but not always if you do it carefully. Acne, um, hair growth in places you don't want it to grow, and hair loss actually as well. Sometimes we'll even see clitoral enlargement or a hoarseness in the voice if really they're very sensitive and or get really, to be honest, too much testosterone. Um, sometimes I see patients like that who have been treated elsewhere and come to me and haven't recognized that they've been very um, androgenized uh, in their therapy. So you mentioned blood levels. So we should be checking testosterone levels in these patients who are starting If you're going to uh, make the jump and use testosterone therapy, you really should be checking a level probably at three, four weeks. Um, also checking in with the patient about the side effects if they have them um, and seeing where in the range they are. If they're on the higher end of the normal and they have not seen any benefit, I don't see any reason not to extend it for another three months and sort of see how they do. But again, if they're not really experiencing any uh, benefit over a period of 6 to 12 months, then um, I certainly would discontinue. And most women actually discontinue almost on their own because it is something that we have them use on a daily basis. And as compliance for anything else, if you're not getting benefit, you tend to discontinue. Sure. Since there are no FDA-approved testosterone products for women, we're using those really designed for men. Uh, which form do we use? Are, are the doses, I would think, would be much different for a right. female and than male. Correct. And actually, in our clinic, we do not prescribe male um, FDA-approved products. We actually have our pharmacy compound it, um, a 1% testosterone in a, in a cream, and have the patients use it that way because what, what you can run into is women gaining an excessive amount because, again, we only need about one one-thousandth of what men need, and that's very hard to, in a packet, um, do you sure. have a do drop? Yeah. Do you have half the packet? Um, generally speaking, that's very hard to dose. How about the phosphodiesterase inhibitors such as sildenafil? Are they any value in women? The studies certainly say that it may be helpful in counterbalancing the SSRI-induced uh, difficulty with desire. Uh, but generally speaking, it may be helpful more so with arousal. Uh, just like for men, the Viagra or Sildenafil is used to improve erection. Well, the same process with regards to clitoral uh, blood flow. Um, I don't see it as helpful for desire, but there are some studies currently being done on drug combinations with testosterone plus Sildenafil. And so, again, stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll get something available for women at some point. Okay. How about alternative medicines or herbal treatments? Any of those have any benefit? Well, it's amazing how much money is spent on all those things. Um, my recollection is there's like over $37 billion spent on wellness, sexual wellness products 
everything from supplements to erotic materials to sex toys and everything else. But when it comes to supplements, uh, the other scary part is they're not FDA regulated, right? So many of those products have um, uh, things in there that are not supposed to be in there, like sildenafil, Mm -hmm. like fluoxetine. Um, and I think that is problematic for the person who's trying to use something over the counter. Herbals like maca root or even aphrodisiacs like uh, oysters, um, they really have unfortunately not shown to be that more helpful than placebo. Uh, but a lot of those studies are very small and uh, it's very anecdotal. So it's not exactly something that we recommend in our clinic, although there are projects. Uh, products. There's a supplement called Arginex, um, or excuse me, Arginmax, that has various uh, entities in it, amino acids, really, L-arginine, and a few of those kinds of products, um, nitric oxide. Uh, those are supposed to impact the brain centrally. It can have some influence peripherally as well. Um, overall, though, there aren't a lot of supplements that are going to work, although we hear those commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually one product called Fiera, F-I-E-R-A, which is actually for vasocongorgement of the clitoris. It's a little apparatus that you actually sort of a suction that you actually fit onto the clitoris that sort of um, helps increase the blood flow. Subsequently, of course, what, what did I say before? Increasing arousal begets some desire, and so that's sort of how that works seems like this shouldn't be just a woman's issue. I would think in many cases it's a couple's issue. So what's the role of the partner, the sexual partner, in the management of this condition? That's a loaded question because they can be a helper or they can be the herder. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly domestic issues we come across. Um, but overall, uh, it's about realistic expectations. It's about negotiating with your partner as to what it is that you both want. If one partner wants sex every night and the other partner wants it once a month, somebody's going to be unhappy. And so really it is about having a realistic conversation and sort of saying, where, we're, where can we meet um, and both be happy? Uh, relationships are complex, and some people are just naturally more giving and respectful others sort of this is the way it is this is how i want it and when that kind of a marital discord or relationship discord is problematic we do encourage people to seek out counseling in some way shape or form so in other words this is a very complicated topic Uh, we're dealing with anatomic changes physiologic changes pharmacologic changes um, social changes and without addressing all of them and the fact that we don't have a lot of treatment available must make your job very difficult. Yes. My, I, uh, I don't have a lot of procedures. I tell people my job entails conversation. Mm-hmm. It entails education. It, um, women, when they find out what is normal function, often that is very therapeutic in itself. Because we all have these um, unrealistic expectations, again, or even just limited education as to what's normal. And so just, for example, the idea that all women should orgasm with penile penetration, that's a myth. 
majority of women actually do not. The clitoris becomes the main event. And so if you teach a woman, well, and she often will say, well, I can be orgasmic if I have clitoral stimulation or use a vibrator. And you say, well, that's good because that's normal. But I can't with penile penetration. And you say, well, that's okay because that's normal too. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of shame or guilt over their functioning um, is very much a relief and often can lessen their distress. Finally, are there any good resources out there on this topic that we can we can look through? Recently, the uh, International Study, excuse me, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health put out essentially what we call a white paper on the process of care for management of hypoactive sexual desire disorder in women. And it was published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in April of 2008. One of my colleagues, Dr. Fabian, is one of the authors. And uh, it's a really wonderful uh, outline of the steps to do in terms of assessing the sexual need and then where to go in terms of the treatment. And if you get to the end and you still can't um, seem to find uh, some assistance for your patient, then, of course, certainly refer them to someone who does have expertise. And at the end of the day, I tell all my learners, all really what I want to make sure you do is that you ask your patient in a respectful and kind way. You give them some information if you can, but what you do tell them is that this is certainly a very important part of your well-being, and I'll find out the information or refer you to someone, um, no problem. We've been talking about hypoactive sexual desire with Dr. Jacqueline Thielen, a Mayo Clinic physician in women's health and internal medicine. Jackie, thank you so much for discussing this important topic. Thank you very much for having me. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME. Register for on-demand medical education in a wide variety of specialties at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.